What we will do is tonight, I want us to get a, well, I don't want to minimize it by calling it just a preparation. <clears throat> it really dominates this opening view and picture, portrait of Christ, dominates the entirety of the book. What we want to do is to view it tonight, let it set the direction for us, because these <clears throat> letters to the seven churches... They have varying aspects. They have what is especially interesting for our purposes is the diagnostic value of these letters. We have none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the midst of these churches, as is portrayed in the golden lampstand vision. We have... The Lord Jesus Christ doing the diagnostic work, the assessment, evaluation. <clears throat> I know of one large church where the pastor has made it his purpose off and on through the years to just go through these seven annually so that the church can have its feet held to the fire, uh, so that it's, you get, you get a, a report. I, I have uh, an arrangement with uh, my physician for many years now that I go in once a year for a physical. And there are things that come out of that, um, especially as one ages. Uh, one finds out certain um, patterns and physically or certain problems that may be developing. And it's useful. It's very helpful. Well, what is happening in Revelation 2 and 3 is where the Lord comes to the church. Can you imagine? Will you imagine with me? Let your imagination run wild that the Lord Jesus Christ comes into this assembly. And let's. Uh, this has to be known through the fact that he comes as the glorified Christ, not as the Savior who had purposely limited his knowledge prior to uh, or during his earthly ministry, but that he comes into this assembly with all of the awareness that he needs, all the knowledge. And he knows every one of us. He knows us perfectly. He knows our motives. He knows our thoughts. He knows how we use our time, how we use our money. He knows immediately, instantaneously. He knows what this church is doing, what it's uh, not doing, what it should be doing. Where we're off course, it is a, a very uh, careful and thorough assessment of who we are. And he tells us, uh, we're all calm about that now because uh, we think that uh, that uh, probably not going to happen in just that way. But yet it does because vicariously, if you will, through these seven churches, we, by having them been opened before the Lord and for him to scrutinize these churches, we have, therefore, a very important profile where the strengths should be, what we should be doing, where the correction should be. So by making it clear as to the value of the Lord evaluating these churches, and we may learn from them, and I hope we will. What we will do, we're going to look in verses 9 through 20, focusing especially on this vision of Christ, what it says to us. And then next Sunday night, um, 
Ed Sherwood is going to be taking the first. He will be taking Revelation 2, 1 to 7, and the church at Ephesus, and then we'll be going back, come be Bobby out of town next week, and then he will come, I'll come back and we'll, we'll proceed on through these, and it'll take us over into probably about the first uh, part of, into November. We'll take one at a time, and, uh, I think the, um, what we were doing with them will become evident. All right, now what I'd like for you to do is follow with me while I read. I'm going to be reading beginning at verse 9 of Revelation and chapter 1. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive evermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, we'll trust God to open this up. We're purpose tonight is not going to be an exact attention to every detail from 9 to 20. I did a series in Revelation, and this goes back to 1999 is when I started it, and where I treated it verse by verse through the entirety of the book. My purpose tonight is to try to zero in on some 
the, the important um, the features of this portrait of Christ. I'd like to take the little paragraph, the little blurb that I did in the bulletin, and I'd like to bring that to uh, bring that across your bow, if you will, and let that uh, lead me into a couple of things. We have some introductory work. Was Jesus tall, dark, and handsome? Was he muscular and athletic? Was he inconspicuous looking? Just an average looking Jewish man? Yes, I admit, these are trick questions, and you may be mildly uncomfortable even by having them have been posed a bit. When I wrote that, I thought, did I just say that? (laughs) I am personally, I am intrigued by our Lord's personal words, his activities, his day-to-day life in his incarnate body. I'm intrigued by that. But isn't it interesting that how Scripture purposely keeps a veil over most of that? We don't have references to Jesus and personal hygiene, personality. Did he laugh? How often did he cry? Did he stories about friends that he saw die and he grieved and his childhood, his adolescence? There's a lot if you really let your imagination go with it. But scripture just is stunningly silent. Why? Because what is important as you know this very well, is that when you come to the Gospels, you open up with the profundity of his birth and then move rapidly through a tremendous amount of time and potential material, and you run right to the crucifixion week where most of the time in the Gospels, are, most of that time is focused. I'll come back. Let me go back to this little blurb. We do not know anything about his hair, eyes, feet, voice. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus in his earthly body. But we do have a description of Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body. And he is absolutely awe-inspiring. Well, that said, let me walk you through a couple of things. I have two introductory statements placed before you in the introduction, and I want to accentuate those just a bit, but let's look at them. In the first place, we need to note something about the circumstances that John experienced himself when he wrote this revelation, the revelation. And the desired effect of this opening vision and this book, two things. Most agree that John's revelation was probably written during the time of the emperor Domitian, the 81 AD to 96 AD. So maybe somewhere in the early, late 80s, early 90s in that first century. 
John's world, what was it like at that time? It was anything but peaceful. John was in exile. Churches were being destroyed. Christians had been in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire in a governmental way, I mean, in a broad, big way, since Nero in the 60s, 6th decade A.D. Christians were being persecuted and killed. Laws were being passed against Christian ministry. That's the way things were on, as you would have observed it, if you could have read some imaginary newspaper presenting the times. And by the way, as I said those things, did something strike you? Did it strike you that there are some similarities between what the church was going through and what the church is going through in the world today? Now, what is going on here is that John gives to us in this opening vision and as a designed picture of Christ so that we will be awed by him and overwhelmed because of the circumstances in which the church found itself in the last decade of the first century. Uh, So therefore, I put it this way, that the greatest encouragement for a persecuted and maligned church is a vision of the glorified Christ. This vision is here to lift the spirits, to sharpen the focus, to give encouragement, to quicken the step, to do all that and more for a persecuted, maligned, beleaguered church. This is what they needed. Actually, this vision of Christ extends all the way to the end of chapter 3. And this vision, though it describes an appearance, I mean, everything from hair to feet, that it's telling us more than something about outward appearance. There's a very good reason, I think, why this New Testament doesn't give us any pictures and such or verbal pictures of the personal appearance of Christ other than the Isaiah 53. That's what we need to know. And his visage was marred and how he was not attractive in that in that uh, rejected, persecuted or uh, tormented and suffering savior at the cross. But this imagery that John uses to describe Jesus Christ here, this imagery, much of it is drawn from Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. So John's not seeing things with which he's totally unfamiliar. And that these characteristics, this picture of Christ, coming from that, one writer has put it this way, John uses hyperbole. That's designed divinely designed in hermeneutics, it's designed exaggeration to describe the indescribable reality of the glorified Christ. What John wants the church to see is that the church is winning when it looks upon itself and thinks that it's losing. And my, I tell you, a church that goes through hard times 
can easily fall into that trap, can we not? When there are losses, when we look, uh, we look battered and bruised and we're taking hits left and right and the culture turns against it and misrepresents the church and marginalizes it and even demonizes the church as a great threat to the rest of society, which was happening in the first century. That this picture of Jesus Christ brings me to my second observation. That this image, this picture of Christ reveals Christ. The Christ, the unsaved, have refused to believe. And the Christ who's coming again. So get yourself ready. Jesus is the Lord of all through death and resurrection. It's not a defeated church. We're not a church that though a minority view in the world, a minority opinion, a minority theology, that the church is winning. You know why? Who is in the midst of the churches? The resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And the picture of him is given in such a way as to be overwhelmed with who he is, those one in the midst of the church. Now let's move through these and here I'm going to be, I'm going to quick step it through the opening verses, through verses 9 through 11. And then when we, uh, as we proceed on down through verses 12 through 16, I want to give just a little more detailed attention. So, Watch it here at the first where I put it to this way, put it for you forward this way. God sovereignly determined the circumstances for the writing of the entire book of the Revelation. I think that's why these these facts are given here. For example, here the reference in chapter nine to the suffering of the church, John's suffering and God uses suffering to advance his purposes. John himself is on the Isle of Patmos. It's about 37 miles west-northwest of Miletus, another island. And its characteristics, you would look at it and think maybe you're on the surface of Mars or maybe some parts of the big island of Hawaii. It is volcanic hills, rocky ground. It was used as a Roman penal colony. Sort of like our, what used to be Alcatraz, you maybe have heard, Devil's Island, purposely out away from a mainland, a desolate place, and probably one that if you got out of the prison, if there were a prison on Patmos, that uh, there wouldn't be a whole lot of surviving and getting to any kind of on-land help. Eusebius, and I'm, I'm quoting here, Eusebius mentions that John was banished to the island by the Emperor Domitian in A.D. 95 and released 18 months later by Nerva, a subsequent Roman emperor. Now, John sees himself here in a very interesting way. Notice the way in which he identifies. He sees himself as a partner with fellow Christians. In three areas. See those three? In suffering. I'm suffering. You're suffering. Kingdom. And 
patient endurance. <clears throat> and the point I think that's implied here is that faithfulness to Jesus Christ will bring suffering. Now remember this about John. He is perhaps in his 90s himself by the time. He's the last of the living apostles. When with all of his notoriety and certainly prestige to certainly within Christian circles and still living and all the others have died martyrs' deaths, that what he is presenting is here, he himself is going through isolation, persecution, ill treatment. He's suffering along with the believers. I think purposely tagged, if you will, like in a Facebook picture, he's tagged by Acts 14 and 22. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. Do I share on behalf of his body, which is the church, to in filling up that which is, um, excuse me, this is Colossians 1.24, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I misread because the Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, therefore, the point of this, that John brings up his identification with suffering, is that it's God's intention that the people of Christ exhibit the afflictions of Christ in their own afflictions. John sets the scene for this portrait of Christ, the glorified Christ. And this vision, it tells us that the one who rules all things, the sovereign Lord, is that he does so from the midst of the churches. How does he carry out his plan among the nations? How does he work out his purposes in the midst of a suffering church? So he's not some far-off, detached, celestial CEO, if you will, who sees things going on in his church and gives out directives, but he's in the midst of it doing the work, the sovereign work who having his hands, his providential hands on everything. He is in our midst. That's to bring up the lift the spirits of the churches in Asia Minor and ours as well. So therefore then we can proceed to say that there's one other feature of this that I want to comment and that is comment on. You notice that he says that he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. I'll be brief here. I think what he means is that by being in the spirit, he is describing himself as being elevated to a spiritual state. In other words, he's transported into the world of prophetic visions by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is giving him an ability to see things. I mean, it's an extraordinary audio-visual experience. This is the entirety of the book where he sees these things in his mind's eye. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't insane. And the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ makes this possible. Why do I say it that way? Because he refers to this as occurring on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. This is an unusual way to refer to the moment. But if Sunday, the first day of the week, is in focus here, what is the first day of the week for? What is it? It's the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some see that this is the day of the Lord, and I won't go through the arguments for and against those two 
But what John is taken by is this, that he hears a voice behind him. And here's where we proceed to verses 12 to 16. The book of Revelation then was written to set forth the abiding love of Jesus Christ for his church. And these lampstands that he sees, they represent individual churches that are scattered through the nations, among the nations. Now, true, they were in Western Asia Minor. I visited the sites of these churches, uh, Beth and I did, a few years ago. And I was quite excited and anticipating what I was going to see. You know, That's the joy of visiting some of these spots. After you've preached in the Bible, you, your anticipation really gets up. But then, in another sense, it comes crashing down. Because of all the sites that we visited, all seven of them, I think probably the most pitiful one was probably the one in Philadelphia, the church Philadelphia. You just see in the midst of, the, of a city, you see some, um, you see some uh, pillars where there was a temple. And it's like seeing part of a city that existed 2,000 years ago in the midst of a, and there's hardly anything there. It's just ruins and very few ruins. But I will tell you the one I was impressed with. And that's Ephesus. Whoa, my. That is much excavation. Archaeological work has been done there. But, but, no need to get into all that. I can safely tell you that the churches in those cities do not exist. Certainly they do not exist as they did. I can't resist this aside that one thing that I did notice in that trip that we took all through western Turkey, which is... uh the, the, the area, the geographical area of these churches. This is a grief. There were, as once, there were churches that dotted the landscape all through those, that Roman province of Asia Minor. House churches, house churches. And eventually constructed churches as they went on into the third and the fourth centuries. You know what you see now? Minarets, minarets, minarets. And the call to prayer to Allah. Oh, and I thought, Lord, what happened? What happened? All right, that's another aspect of the sermons to come as we look through them. But I will say this then. That the glorified Christ is seen in the midst of the churches. And here we are, how he's presented. I find it... uh, particularly interesting about John, though I'm, I'm looking ahead down through verse uh, 16, that when John saw Christ, what happened? And the voice just rattled his cage, and then he saw it. Now, mind you, this is the same John who was one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, He saw Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember Moses and Elijah come into the picture as well. He saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. And at the Last Supper, we have good reason to believe that he's leaning over on the chest of Jesus. An intimate relationship. But let me tell you this. When he saw this... What does it say? He was floored. 
knocked down to his feet, his body prostrate as a dead man. Uh, should I resist that thought? No, I won't. The folks who have encounters with Jesus, so they think, the, the glorified Jesus. Sometimes this often happens in a hospital bed. Or as we have a popular movie out now, I don't know if it'll be popular. The book is with some Christians. And was it 90 minutes in heaven? 90 minutes in heaven. And I, this is not the time to critique that. But I would just say, oh, really? You really died and you saw the glorified Christ and you were in heaven. My. For one thing, the Apostle Paul, when he was transported to the third heaven, he was told he was strictly under instructions. Second Corinthians 12. Paul, zip it. You don't say anything. He just, instead he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble because of the extraordinary experience of being transported, ported. And then we have John here seeing the glorified Lord and he looks like a dead man on the spot. He's so knocked out and over. All right, but now let's go through these. Let's go through the description. And I want to move through this because I want to give you five takeaways from this and how this bears upon who we should be as a church and what we anticipate in Revelation 2 and 3. First of all, we find that his clothing here is a robe that reaches to his feet. I think, now let me preface this. I'm familiar enough with this passage and with commentaries on this. Uh, as I started getting introduced to this back in the 19, early 60s. I'm familiar enough with them to know there is some variation among commentators as to the significance. And I don't want us to get all tied in knots over um, um, the interpretational nuance of each. And I'll try to give you what I think is pretty close to the focus of each of them. But there is some variation so you may have a study Bible that will give you some comments that may differ a shade with what I'm giving to you here. But I think this is what's involved. All right. What does he see? He first of all sees his clothing. You would expect that, wouldn't you? And this, I think, speaks of his majesty. Priestly clothing, also associated with the fact of a king's robe. And so here is he says the greatness of like a priest in the Old Testament in his robe. And this golden sash that's worn by the priest in the Old Testament, Exodus in chapter 28 and verse 4. And so here is this picture of Jesus in his work in majesty. And I use the word work here as a noun. He is working majestically. See him as our priest. And he's king. And he's prophet as well. And he's in the midst. And then he sees him with this golden sash. I think the sash speaks of certainly his work and his dignity in that work. Reference, uh, I think, probably to his kingship. And he's the ascended Christ. He is the authoritative judge. He's the coming king. And that's the first presence as he walks in with or as he comes to John in this vision and he sees him. So he's at work carrying out his purpose in this world. See him that way. See him that way. But we're not through. His head and his hair. 
His hair is white. What's the significance? I think it does speak of his eternity. Some want to shade this off for us to understand and see it as referencing to his purity, his nobility of thoughts, the the hoary head, the gray head. Um, if if a life has been lived before the Lord in obedience and fearing Him, you know the proverbs say it's a glory. The glory of an old man is his gray hair, and the point that he's making is, I think, seeing, focusing upon Jesus in his eternal preexistence. And then his eyes speak of, and I look at the allusion here to Daniel 10 in verse 6, his omniscience, this penetrating scrutiny, fierceness, and looking right. You've said that of someone, well, it looked like he was just looking straight through me. Our works will be tried by fire. His omniscience, he knows everything that penetrates. Could you stand it if you walked up to someone and they knew everything about you? The thoughts that you were having? That would be a scary moment, wouldn't it? We're protected by our finiteness there. And so this omniscience, and he, he knows the motivations of our heart. He knows the secret deeds of our lives. Now, mind you, this is the Christ who is in the midst of the churches, who says to the churches by his presence there that he's, we're winning, but it's also the Christ who is looking at each church and evaluating, assessing. Then you'll notice that his feet here are presented as it were, as if fired to a white, hot, in a white hot kiln. And I think this speaks of his omnipresence. And the bronze, a symbol of judgment. That he cannot tolerate sin in his church. And he comes into the church, comes in the midst of the churches as one who has this power to do thorough, thorough judgment. And he judges in time, and he will judge at the judgment seat of Christ. And then his voice, it sounds like waterfall, a waterfall, the roaring of water. I don't know, when you get in the presence of a waterfall, a really big one, not one little pitiful trickle like some of George's waterfalls, but you can't hear anything else. You have to raise your voice if you even want to be heard. I think the implication, his voice was all that mattered. <laughs> the sound of it. His voice speaking of omnipotence. Then, <clears throat> his right hand, he speaks of sovereignty. It's the place of power and safety, authority, control. And that he has control over the church. And he's the loving, faithful judge of the church. Then his mouth, there is this mouth which speaks, I think, of the word that judges men. And that this word is the instrument that he uses to turn hearts in the direction in which they need to go. He speaks the word. Here is my evaluation. Here is where you are to go as a church. And then his face, 
His face speaks of preeminence. Reminds us of the transfiguration and the Shekinah glory that was just overwhelming and just knocked you back. So this is more here than we might say of a human being. You've heard it said, well, so-and-so, they have a persona. When they walk into a room, everybody's just taken back by their presence. None of that pitiful human self-flattery here. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who in his glorified presence is presented to John and to his readers and in the midst of the churches so that we will be awed and taken back by him and leaving us speechless. And that's why I say in verses 17 and 18 that the glorified Christ inspires all. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And in his right hand, and laid, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, Alpha, Omega, and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. You see the significance of that to a suffering church, beleaguered and made to feel at uh, odd man out in this world? Look at what he says. I think three things emerge here from these verses. First, his eternal sonship. That gives reassurance to the churches, to us. He's always had this relationship with a father as son. It was not a new thing. And then his divine saviorhood gives reassurance. He's the living one who is to be distinguished from all other gods and is identified with the God of the Old Testament. He is the supreme one. We prayed for uh, one of our young men this morning in our Sunday school class, uh, Josh Glorbigan. He was going to speak with a gentleman, an Army Ranger, had been in a serious automobile accident yesterday and was at the Atlanta Medical, is at the Atlanta Medical Center. And John, or or Josh, was. we, we stood here and we prayed for him as he was going to speak to this severe, seriously injured ranger. And he was telling me that uh, the belief system, the belief system of this ranger was Nordic gods in religion. And I went, oh, <laughs> why? Gods. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign control over the king of terrors provides reassurance. He has the keys of death and Hades. And that means that he has control over the place of the departed spirits. He has control over the experience of death. He's conquered death. He has your death and my death exactly timed for when he wants it to occur. Fear not. And that should give us enormous boldness and strength in the midst, in the presence of our own death when it's coming. I was speaking with Al Stanley last night. He's in the hospital, and he was this morning. They transferred him to Piedmont downtown. Uh, Al Stanley has been a long-time attender. He's not been here in recent years. He's been in our men's Bible study for 40-plus years on Monday mornings. And he is in a serious condition. He has a number of problems, which with the, he has to go to the hospital for one thing. It triggers AFib and he's congestive heart failure and he's got severe internal bleeding, intestinal bleeding. 
But uh, what uh, what Hal was Al was telling me was the people that in the hospital in the last two weeks out of the month, all the people he's been talking to about Christ. It so happened that we got word David Huther is pushing his chemo bottle around. I guess I don't know. Maybe it's uh, I don't know if it's uh, just electrolytes or what, whatever. Whatever you know, you 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 hold your back. You, you hold. Poison, yeah. And you hold the back of your gown together because you don't want to embarrass you. <laughs> and, and you go down the hall and he's talking to anybody who will listen. Joyfully so. Fighting for joy, just like Al Stanley. Fighting for joy in the midst of suffering. Because why? Who's in the midst of the churches? The resurrected Jesus Christ who has the keys of death in Hades. Of all people, Christians should be strong and stalwart and should be ready to speak of the glories of Christ in the midst, uh, in, in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, that's exactly what John wants, the impression he wants to come forward. I want to conclude, I want to conclude with five, five takeaways here. I'll put it this way. Number one, I think, what does it mean to be awed, to be impressed, to be overwhelmed, <clears throat> uh, as we use the word, and I, I have a little quirk. I picked it up years ago uh, for what it's worth. I'm not saying you have to adopt it. But I think it's good to reserve at least uh, some words, if not a word, to refer to that which is really awesome. I refuse to call a visit to um, an ice cream shop an awesome experience. I hear a lot of young people refer to maybe a certain shirt or clothing or shoes or whatever. That's awesome, man. Use it if you will, but I prefer to use the word awesome for God himself in some aspect of his being. With that said, that's just an eccentric thing, vocabulary-wise. To be awed. To be awed by Jesus Christ is to love him more and more. Do you love him more now than you did last year? Are you more, and I mean, hear my my word here, infatuated, affection, intrigued by him, interested in him? Are you wanting to do more for him than you've ever done before? Sacrifice for him. Is that growing? If you're awed by him, it's got to be happening. Secondly, to be awed by Jesus Christ is to obey him. Can't talk about love without obedience. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Am I obeying him? And what the Lord will do is that he'll give you some test case. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm obeying. And then within 24 hours, you get in a situation where you get a little surprise and you find out what a stinker you really are. I, I don't know. But Lord, oh Lord, I'm awed by you. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. I want to obey you in this. I want to obey you. Thirdly, to be awed by Jesus Christ is to hate sin more and more. To hate sin. You see what it does. How cruel. What a a deceptive thing it is. Hate it. Hate it. Lord, I hate sin. And systems of of religion. 
where people are blinded by those systems. You can hate that system, whatever it is, and love those people, but hate sin. Fourthly, to be awed by Jesus Christ is to experience joy and endurance through trials. Joy and endurance. Fight for joy. Endurance. By endurance, I mean that you stay at it with the Lord through no matter what difficulties come. Disappointments. Losses. Losses that are so difficult to deal with. You have those. I have those. Lord, you would take that away? You would? Well, I can understand why you took... I can understand why you took that away from so-and-so, but you're taking this away from me? Ah, I'm awed by the Lord. I've got... At least I'm on the proper footing to be as I'm awed by the Lord to work through it. And finally, to be awed by Jesus Christ is to tell others about him. And that's why we exist as a church. And I will come back to some of the practical footwork that uh, Justin's given to us and others. That as a church, we work through this gospel of John. Here's the John who wrote the gospel of John. Who saw the resurrected Christ. Was he wrote the book. The gospel before his experience. Here in Revelation 1. But still. Point is. Gospel of John. Um, we have these. Um, they're downstairs. And, and, and they're in that little alcove downstairs. As you get ready to go out the back. Well our front door. Back door. Whatever. And they're there in the little cards. I had one. But it dropped down in one of my notes here. Some of my notes, but you may want to replenish this supply that you have, and um, you can't give out anything more potent than that, than the Gospel of John. And are you praying for some unsaved person or persons? And there are different ways you can do that. To, and, you know, this kind of thing keeps you aroused and stimulated to, as we're awed by Christ, we're conscious of unsaved people. Um, I've said this to you before, but one thing my... My, I learned from my father-in-law. He's been with the Lord for many years now. But I remember he said long ago that whenever he heard a siren, Aaron, this will be right down your line here, that when he heard a siren, he prayed. He prayed for the people. Because that means something. Even They're getting stopped for a traffic t- <laughs> ticket. Lord, And I, so I try to do this. I open my window in the mornings when I get up to pray, and I got as long as the weather allows. And I, I've got my chair right there by the window and I open it. So often I'll hear something out in the distance, some siren. I say, Lord, send them a gospel person. Send them the gospel. Whatever trouble there is, pray for the first responder too involved. Things like this help us to keep us stimulated and stirred. As the cars go up and down my street. I need to care more for the unsaved on my street. And I, one way I try to work at it is that when the car, I, I know my street. <laughs> I know what car belongs where. I see him go up the street. Lord, Lord, is there right driving up that street? Lord, could you, could they turn on the radio and listen? If it's by accident, <laughs> some way get their mind going. Maybe they've got a terrible thing going on in their home right now. Marriage problems, who knows what. Lord, use that to turn to Christ. And then when you walk up and down your street, you're ready for a conversation. (laughs) You are. Let's pray. We'll go.
Thank you, O Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that precious work of redemption and this portrait, Lord. Oh, Lord, as your servant Spurgeon said, this is a portrait of Christ that can never be painted. Lord, it indeed it is true. Lord, move in our hearts that we will live this week awed by you. And Lord, I want to pray again for as our brother Frank goes to Malawi this next Saturday. Give him safety and travel. Give him all the energy that he needs. Keep him well. And use him to encourage many. And Philip as well there with him. In Christ's name, amen.